Hey, Neil. Good evening. How good evening, sir. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, great. Looking forward to this one. This, again, is an interesting take on history. Edward Wilson Lee, as our esteemed guest, joining us from Cambridge, where he does has a, um, a professorship. Edward, is that right? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a lecturer. You, you would think you definitely are deserving. Well, that's very kind of you. Uh, Hopefully the right people will be listening to, uh, to the podcast. <laughs> Yeah, no, indeed, indeed. Well, again, with the whole point of historians is that we, we try to make history as accessible as possible to people. And you have a very interesting way of telling history. You use people, essentially, and get quite in-depth to make a wider point. And technically, you're a, you are a historian of, of books, yeah? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my the kind of core of my academic research is thinking about the 15th and 16th centuries and how the world was changing, partly because of print and, and partly because of the new connections that Europeans were making with other cultures around the world. So yeah, that, that's the kind of core of my academic research. But as you say, that can be a bit dry unless you give it a, a narrative framework to take people through it. And this yeah. is so important with history that we're finding, Edward, true, true. Many of our guests, I think history has maybe a tradition of being a bit, a little bit dusty and people maybe a bit reluctant to kind of get into it. But it's just so much more than a, just a dusty book on a shelf, isn't it? There's some great history out there. And thanks to people like yourself who are almost rewriting and bringing to a much wider audience. Well, they, although the mention of dusty books on shelves gets gets me excited, <laughs> so want to find out what it what it is that no one's been right. writing. Well, I suppose people like you and us we're the, we're the go between of the the dusty shelves then, and to people who may be listening in tonight and going, well, I'm my interest in history, my interest in history. We're the kind of go betweens then. We get the dusty books down from the shelves and disseminate it if we're not bigging ourselves up too much. And what, what we're going to talk about this evening is your book, A History of Water, and, and the prose in it are exquisite. Mm. Lose yourself in the fact that, am I reading a novel? Is, it, is this fiction or is it actual history? I mean, that's, that's an incredible achievement uh, just, just in itself. Um, mm. But for, for our listeners, explain to us now, I suppose, the, the, the two characters. The, the setting is Portugal, and we've got two characters, Luis de Camois, who is a famous Portuguese poet, and then we also have Damião de Gua, if I get the pronunciation correct. Very um, good, Derek. And <laughs> he is, he is a functionary who is a, the chief archivist in the Tower of Books, the Torre de Tombo. So tell us a little bit about their stories and how you use this as a, a vehicle to, to make a, a greater point, a wider point. Yeah, so as you say, they're both Portuguese figures involved in the the portuguese encounter with the wider world so the the book starts uh with a with a murder scene uh with a rather peculiar way in which uh, one of these characters dies uh and then goes back and, and goes through their lives to try and think about how we get to this point and they they are both fascinating characters as you say um Camões is the portuguese national poet uh, a figure greatly beloved and and uh, in Portugal and and reasonably well known outside Portugal, but he actually lives a a rather kind of disreputable life as a ne'er do well, bouncing between one port and the next, and endlessly in and out of jail and bankrupt and things like that. Uh, so he lives a a kind of 
rather mysterious um, and and uh, uh, rollicking life um, between Portugal and, uh, and and India and and China um, and and all over the world really. Um, so one of the the storylines follows him, and the other storyline follows as as I say the as you say this this archivist Damiao de Goyce, who's the man who ends up <laughs> in a sticky you know, has a sticky ending. Um, but he himself is a, an utterly fascinating character. You know, he's one of these uh, Renaissance polymaths. So he's a great collector of art, one of the first collectors of Hieronymus Bosch. Uh, he's a composer, a translator of the Bible. He knows all of the kind of great figures of the age. So he, Luther shows up in his story and Erasmus and, and, and so many other characters. And then he, he retires back to, to, to Portugal halfway through his life. And we can talk about the circumstances of that, if, if you like, um, to become an archivist. Um, after a fairly adventurous first half of his life, he, he retires. But actually, this is where the adventure begins, because the, the Torre de Tombo archive, the, the Portuguese National Archive, is in a sense the first global archive. It's an archive where letters are flowing in from all across the world with reports about these cultures uh, that are unimaginable to Europeans. So part of the, the kind of adventure and part of the interest here is, is how Europeans dealt with this information about uh, the, these strange places that they could never you know, have imagined existing only a generation before. Right. I, you, don't, you don't quite think sometimes, given the time that it's set in, that we, we live in a capitalist world. That kind of seems like an invention to last 150 years. But when, when he's with Martin Luther, it's his wife gives him dinner and it's hazelnut and apples right and he comes in and he has this notion of just how wasteful the, the modern capitalism in, in his world was uh, and it's an interesting thing to to note for sure yeah absolutely I and mean, i think a lot of people's experience of, of grand economic phenomena like capitalism and globalization is really quite a local thing right it's you know, we'll all have had parent or a grandparent sort of casting aspersions at nasty foreign muck uh, that, that actually how you experience these things is not as big philosophical concepts but in terms of what's on your dinner table and certainly this was true in the in the 16th century some people were very uncomfortable with the fact that their dinner tables were suddenly awash with products from India and China and, and Africa and things and they thought that this was both kind of unsettling presumably in a digestive sense but also meant that the world as they knew it was being you know the, the, the funds of their countries were being leached out in these luxury spent on these luxurious goods and going elsewhere in the world and people were getting away from the kind of simple virtuous lives which their parents and grandparents had led so yes now when you went to to Luther's house for dinner, you were going to get some pretty kind of <laughs> stodgy German fare, you know, um, something something pretty pretty local. And again, that was very much a statement against the kinds of, to him, luxuriating uh, elite, overindulgent international tables that would have had all of these spices and, and international products on them. So something yeah. that you can quite similar to our own day. <laughs> Um, I was I was just thinking that it's so funny when you think about people that from that long ago that they're so different to us today. It's like they're people from a different planet almost. There's because it was so long ago. What would they have in connection? You know, they're so they would hardly be able to fathom our world. But we have the same concerns all all the way through. 
Yeah, no, I think there, there are a lot of kind of chilling parallels between this age and ours, and it's why it's such a, I'm sure that's true of many historical ages, but the more you dig into it, the less alien it seems. Mm. Um, and so many aspects of the story, it obviously takes place during the Reformation. It, it's a period in which print had meant that suddenly a single message could be in thousands of hands in a very short period of time. And there were people who were who, who were very good at exploiting that that communication network and that getting people riled up. Uh, and so it was very much a period in which there were very, very strong views that were threatening to, to kind of tear society apart because of this newfangled communication technology, the, print, the printing press. So obviously, that's something that anyone who's lived through the last 10, 15, 20 years can recognise quite easily the, the, the ways in which a new communication technology can have immense, far-reaching and, and extremely violent effects upon society and, and how it how it lives. Well, exactly. It was the social media of its day, effectively. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure he would shudder to hear me say that Erasmus <laughs> was, in a sense, the kind of influencer of his day. The influencer of his day, love it. He, he knew exactly how to exploit print, and he was the first print celebrity. And he, mm. he was people idolized him. And, and Daniel, one of the characters in the book, is, is a kind of Erasmus fanboy and goes to seek seek him out, and lives with him in the, in the dying years of, of his life, and I suppose in sorry the dying months of his life, and and, and gets some of Erasmus's wisdom that he bequeaths to him on not sticking your neck out too much, I suppose, not not picking sides, um, although mm. perhaps he gets this, this this advice a little too late for it to, to do him ultimately any good. Yeah. And that well, was it. Mm. Sorry, Sorry, go ahead, Neil. I was just going to say, like, just in fairness to them, obviously fear and suspicion comes from a sense of insecurity, right? Amongst individuals and indeed nations. Back to the time that we're talking about, it was it wasn't you know Europe was was kind of up against itself. The Portuguese were a great naval power. They had England breathing down their neck, Spain right next door. So everybody was like competing at the same time for riches in the new world and all that. That was all starting to happen. So they were effectively threatened, or they were at least felt under threat almost the whole time. Like they, you're talking about their borders, just some existential threat through uh, what we may sense through social media, but an actual real threat of the barbarians at the gates, right? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, one of the things that the that the nation state needs um, is a, a, a kind of strong narrative of its itself, its identity and its purpose. And this is one of the, the parts of the story. This is what Camões uh, provides for the Portuguese, this kind of heroic narrative of them as a nation destined to go out and, and um, discover and conquer the world and, and so on and so forth. Because I suppose... In a sense, the unasked question is, why should your nation be superior? Why, why not just give way to someone else? So you, every nation needs, just like uh, anyone getting getting up the courage at the pub to uh, uh, approach a pretty girl or something, you know, you need a narrative of why why it should be you. And every nation needs its narrative. And yes, yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. Europe was an immense blow to European confidence in some ways, uh, whereas... Columbus's encounter with the New World was very easily able to be spun into a story of a kind of Edenic innocence. It was very different when the Portuguese arrived in, in India and China. In many ways, they were confronting cultures that were 
older, more sophisticated in some ways than their own. Mm. Uh, and so they were desperately in need of a narrative that uh, gave them back a sense of who they were uh, mm. and, and uh, allowed them to preserve some sense of, of their place in the world. Because again, I think this is, um, this is something that we, we deal with nowadays. We're in, in a world of, um, of intense globalization and a period of intense globalization. But part of the problem with that is, is that uh, we're confronted with uh, other ways of doing things, and those seem very threatening, seem very, um, seem very alien to us. Absolutely. Change, change in and of itself uh, can come, particularly to nation states, as something to be, it's a challenge. And as you say, you need a narrative, a good, good strong backstory to back up what you felt and believed all the time before. So that, that's, I can kind of understand where they're coming from. I do, I do kind of get it. It may seem a little bit churlish to our eyes now, but we're not that far off from, from our own sort of difficulties in Europe as we see at the moment. So, it's, you know, we're two completely different in some ways. People have come together. Ukraine's almost, you know, arguably part of that kind of tradition back in Russia. And look, look what's going on over there. So I do kind of understand where they're coming from, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, I mean, I think global geopolitics are a complicated, it's a complicated thing because uh, people, uh, many of these things are being caused by immense economic and geographic uh, features that are barely comprehensible to people. And, and in many ways, that's the way in which reducing history to stories of this king versus that king, this hero versus that hero gives people a framework in which to understand it, in which to turn it into a kind of adversarial thing, right? Um, and I think that's, yeah, so I think, uh, yeah, so it was definitely a, a period in which European assumptions about the world were um, were knocked on the head. And uh, again, part of the, you know, part of the book is about the different responses to this. So Damiao, they're, they're kind of have very different responses. Damiao is, is very open-minded, very excited about what the world has to, to, to offer. And he's the author of the first published account of Ethiopian culture for a European audience. He writes about the, the, the Saumi, the Laplanders. Um, you know, he, he writes these histories of the Portuguese encounter with India and which contain immensely detailed accounts of, of the cultures of Mozambique and, uh, and, and Persia and, and China and India, and he's he's an utter kind of sponge for these things. Whereas Camões uh, has a much more kind of allergic reaction to it, and his response to it is to build this kind of Eurocentric narrative about how, why we, uh, of that kind of that Manichaean struggle, that barbarians at the gates, right? We are the civilized ones, and everyone out there is is simply a, a kind of barbarian who we need to to conquer and, and do away with. So it's it's about differing reactions, I suppose, to, to, to otherness, to foreignness. And the conduit for all this, or going back to the internet analogy, the broadband for all this information age, I was beginning, water. This water. is how information was passed. So it's interesting, like, I mean, this is interesting, you, Neil, certainly books, how they actually made it from one country to another in in individual pages, right? In barrels. Yeah, ships, no, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. They were the most efficient way to, to transport them was unbound um, in in barrels. And the barrels could be waxed and, and that would keep them safe. And then they would be bound and everything when they got to the country. But yeah, no, it's it's absolutely central importance. We lose sight nowadays, given that 
modern country boundaries aren't quite as defined by this, but the, the economy of early modern Europe was very much defined by water, by rivers, um, these big, the, the Rhine, the Rhone, the Danube, and, and so on and so forth. The spread of print, the the, the centre of people's, the, the centre of the kind of economic activity, again, when we look at it nowadays, seems very strange. You know, why, why are these regions of kind of bit in Switzerland and a bit of southern Germany and a bit of northern France why are those so important until you realize that that's along the course of a river Uh, and that's that's what allows you to to take things in bulk and then people can come up to the river and and take it away from there so you're absolutely right Mm. and again uh, immense changes in in world history and in world geopolitics are essentially being determined by people's ability to navigate the oceans right um, so whether or not your ships can go, can stand out far into sea or whether they have to coast, they have to stay near the coastline. These have massive determining effects on, on what your 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 people do. Um, and, the, and the Portuguese were particularly good at it. I mean, obviously, they've got a big, huge, long coastline, so they're, they're, they're right up against the sea. So they're going to be adept at it. But I mean, they, they, these guys travel pretty well. I mean, get that far at that point in, in, in time. That must have been some adventure, right? I mean, going to those countries today uh, yeah. would be an adventure, but I can't imagine what it was like for them. Yeah, no, and actually, I mean, the death rates on these things were astonishing. Um, the death rates on these voyages were, were utterly astonishing. And in fact, funnily, and again, this is just an illustration of the ways in which slightly unexpected things can have massive impacts upon the course of history. One of the things that I think a lot of historians um, of the of Portuguese expansion agree gave them an edge was a particular form of insurance, which basically meant that if you set off on one of these voyages and you died, your share was guaranteed to go back to your, your family, right? And this gave people the confidence to go off on voyages, despite knowing that their chances of coming back uh, were fairly slim, right? So um, this is a massive advance in that in any other country, no one's going to agree to st- set sail on a voyage when their chances of coming back are 50%. Mm. But uh, if you provide this kind of guarantee, then you know, people have uh, a lot more reason to to, to sign up, right? Um, so again, this, this particular kind of uh, life insurance that the Portuguese invent for their merchant navies. It has an immense effect on their ability to recruit people to go on these these voyages. Yeah, because it wasn't just the water. Obviously, it was the nutrition as well. Scurvy would have been the main the main killers, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you've disease and um, and storms and um, being blown off course and not having enough not having enough food on board any number of things uh, can happen landing in the wrong place uh, mm. where someone someone unfriendly is in control um, all of these things uh, you know can can do for you yeah, yeah so and if but... it's, it's it's not as well known i mean you know we, we know in this part of the world we're a bit more au fait with captain cook i suppose i'm a big fan of his and he discovered quote unquote new zealand you know and and no. the, the that coast of, of australia the east coast of australia but there was a guy there from even a couple of hundred years or 100 years before him had already mapped out part of tasmania so these 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 particularly the portuguese they were great explorers right in, in particular and but we don't hear so much about them i, I think that's the the hero narrative is more we keep to the to, to the guys that we do know, right? And we kind of overlook. Yeah, I mean, so you know, one, one of the um, 
one of the consequences of this this kind of race, the scramble for the globe, I suppose, is a, a firmer uh, sense of nationalism, and you focus on your own national story and the things that increase your confidence in your own national destiny. And it's very good. It's very easy to have uh, confidence in your national destiny if you only pay attention to your story. Exactly. Right? Because then everyone else seems fairly irrelevant by comparison, right? Um, So, uh, yes, I think certainly this is an age, the growth of the nation state and the growth of national cultures in which people become increasingly focused on their own national culture and and, and oblivious towards others. So I think that's, that's definitely... Uh, I'm, I'm a bit baffled here, Derek, you might help me out, because we're in Ireland, obviously in Ireland, but we don't have many seafaring heroes, do we? We just don't have it in our, our narrative whatsoever. We got on boats all right, but they were well, going in one direction over to well, America and they didn't come back. That was it. Shall I, shall I say, with one exception, okay. uh, Grania Whale or uh, Grace O'Malley, who is actually an ancestor of, of mine, Drew drew the waves off the coast of Mayo and very successfully, in fact, uh, she and uh, yes, she would have she would have dined with uh, Queen Elizabeth. I did not know this, Derek, but but now that you mentioned you you do look the part with the with with beard and everything, you could be a seafaring captain. But just get to yourself there because this is about you more than us. Yeah. Uh, Do do you you're you're in Cambridge, right? Yeah. Very beautiful part of the world. So you have the River Cam. Close to the, do, yep. do, do you have an affinity yourself with with water and rivers and uh oceans in particular uh yeah absolutely i mean not necessarily the river cam although it's only about you know 50 meters down that way um uh out the window uh it, it, but um so part of this i grew up in in kenya um oh. um and you know part of my connection to uh to these stories is the fact that obviously Camões uh, leaves one of the first uh, records of uh, European encounter with with Eastern Africa and in the Indian Ocean. And the Indian Ocean was very central to, to my uh, world when I was a child. So um, mm-hmm. there is a there is a bit of a biographical connection, autobiographical connection there with the, with the water mm-hmm. here. And yeah, so no, I, I love being uh, on and and by the water. Yeah, and it's a very interesting. It's an interesting way of of, of thinking about the, the connectivity of the world, I suppose. Mm. Um, things that are instead of being neighbours by by land, which are connected by ocean routes and things like that, and the kinds of the kinds of uh, unexpected relations that come out of that. Yeah, and the rivers would have been properly backed well before the oceans, obviously, if they're running through the European land masses. So they would have been countries and communities would be better easily more defined i suppose by the fact that rivers ran through them as opposed to a big wide open oceans where you're setting off literally to the edge of the world and so as some people believed yeah so i mean i think yeah i mean one of i suppose one of the one of the the dual things that's going on here with this this idea about the european encounter with the wider world obviously part of the the tone was set for that in setting off on these ocean voyages, which must have felt kind of apocalyptic to them. Mm. I mean, again, anyone who's been out on the open ocean nowadays knows how apocalyptic it can feel, right? The desert and the ocean are these these great kind of eschatological, apocalyptic spaces where you have only the sea and the sky or the sun, you know, the desert and the sky. And and, um, so I think it, it gives rise to particular, particularly kind of, 
grandiose visions of what 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 they're doing and, and what their role in history is and certainly you know Camoges' story um Camoges, it was a fascinating life although it's sometimes difficult to 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 pick apart which bits of it are kind of legends that that he has created about himself and which bits are uh, are true but one of the great legends of of his life is um, after he has been uh, in Macau, he's been living in Macau for a, for a number of years, he, he very possibly was part of the first Portuguese expedition that created a, a Portuguese settlement in, in Macau. Um, but he's recalled as one, you know, as part of one of his perennial episodes with the law, he's recalled to India because he's been, uh, he's been accused of malfeasance in his post. Uh, and on the way back, um, he gets involved in a shipwreck off the coast of, of modern Vietnam, off the, um, the, the, the Mekong Delta. And the story goes that he swam ashore from the sinking ship, uh, carrying above his head the half-finished uh, epic poem that he was writing about. The, about the Portuguese, about Vasco da Gama's voyages, the Lusiads, um, and apparently also abandoning his Chinese mistress. So he, he can only save one of the two things. Uh, he saves the poem instead of the, the, the Chinese mistress. And whether or not this is true, I think it, it speaks volumes about the ways in which uh, we think of this, the ocean as this kind of abyss, right? Um, that the the poem having survived in the, the face of this abyss, having been snatched from the jaws of this abyss, somehow gives it this aura of a kind of sacred object. So the story creates a kind of aura around the poem, because any mm. book that has been saved from drowning in the ocean seems like a kind of sacred magic book. So yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which water and, and oceans, are, I think, are central to the ways in which early modern people thought through the world yeah and is there a mention somewhere of mirror men did i pick that up correctly oh yeah absolutely so um uh damiao um the the other character the other main character um as i say is it's kind of sponge-like character he he's fascinated by everything he's um his writings are contain notes about everything and one of the things that he's utterly fascinated in is is mermen so and again you know one of we think of the growth of of kind of scepticism um of you know of not believing in fairy tales as being one of the kind of great advances of modernity right but i think there's a flip side to that where being open-minded they were obviously in the early modern period they were being flooded with all sorts of stories about things and it was very difficult to know what to believe and, and damiao to be honest sort of has his arms open to all of it he he, he sort of sort of believes all of it and and uh, but merman uh, are you know, his his writings are, are kind of littered with stories about mermen, and I think part of this is is about thinking what it is what what it is to be human and what what it is that we think of as as human, right? So, there, can there be something which is, is somehow eerily different? You know, it doesn't talk like a human or look like a human or smell like a human, and yet you are willing to grant it a kind of a certain humanity that. And then all the things that go with it, all the the rights and the, the the responsibilities towards it that you would feel that you have towards another human. And I think that's that's the kind of the positive instinct that people can have. Obviously, mm. the, the alternate instinct is to, to close down the definition of humanity, to have something that 
looks like a looks like a man and sounds like a man and, and acts like a man and yet you are you find a way of denying its humanity of, of saying this thing is is not a man and of course with the slave trade and and, and, mm. and um many of the colonial ventures that's obviously what they did is they they looked at things that were in many ways no different from them and decided mm. that they were somehow not fully human so one of these things is one of the things that's going on here is thinking about the definition of humanity and um uh, and what whether you know, how one can broaden it or how one uh, can might might shrink it for for certain purposes. Right. So there's a bit more going on there than I thought. Like I'm, I was just wondering what was he basing it on? What did he see that prompted him, or did he? So there are lots of uh, the merman stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. There are, so I mean, he draws on all sorts of things. So there are ancient reports from classical, you know, classical texts about mermen being spotted off Lisbon. Um, right from you know, the writings of, of, uh, of uh, Roman historians, right through till you know, he he gets reports from local fishermen that he meets about. I saw this, you know, I, I saw a merman down my way last week, <laughs> and, um, yeah, and this is again one of the sort of wonderfully open and um, and um, accepting aspects of his way of looking at the world, in that his his sources are. Um, you know, he's willing to listen to everyone and, and what they have to say, right? And no one is a kind of authoritative source who, and no one is is beneath the level that they might have seen something interesting. Mm. Uh, and of course, this this plays out along racial and national terms as well, as opposed to just telling the Portuguese side of things. His histories of the Portuguese encounter with with um, India and China are filled with accounts that he's derived from documents that give. The, the North African or the, the the Indian or the Ethiopian side of things, um, and that's kind of again kind of like listening to the, fir- the the fishermen tell their stories about mermaids. It's evidence of a certain openness and and uh, an awareness that if you only listen to one side of the story, that you're going to get a kind of very flattened version of history. Right. So he's an all round guy, and he's kind of tapping into that that apocalyptic feel that you mentioned earlier about being out and big wide wild oceans when so little was mapped and so little understood to all intents and purposes these guys actually did believe that they saw or experienced or met mermen that's that's yeah yeah dragons and, and everything else yeah i mean if you if you imagine having lived your life in uh, the ecological framework of of europe and then suddenly coming across a, a giraffe or uh, um, a capybara, or a, a manatee, or something like that. How would you know what to believe, right? I mean, those things would have seemed just as unbelievable as as a merman, I suppose. Absolutely, I saw a platypus once, and I was like, "What the hell is that?" I knew what it was. <laughs> it's seriously strange to see one. And just getting back to the, the my brother is is a, is a fishman, like an actual. That's his job. Those right. trawlers out into the North Atlantic and those guys are, are they're very um what's the word for it like they, they have all these superstitious yeah they're very yeah. superstitious he he's the captain of this particular boat and he's he's my brother so he's well he's he's a chap of the world he's, he's <laughs> but he's you're not allowed whistle on right. the boat big no no they never right, say whistling. the word. Does he don't know? Not they, like it's banned. You, you can't whistle on, on board his boat. Is there a, is there an idea of what the whistling might summon? 
Quite possibly. Like, they're not even open for discussion about it, but it's probably some deep-seated fear of what might rise up from the depths. Yeah, yeah. And another curious thing is they, they never say the word pig, even though they may eat rashers uh, and, and bacon. And they call them the curly-tailed lad. <laughs> Again, pig. yes, presumably this is a, a fear of, of, of something that might be summoned from the deep. And I think that's, yeah, that's where tapping into the stories that you're telling in your book, then it comes right up to yeah. our current time and our current, it's inherent in, in being human to have these deep-seated fears and suspicions that go back to those days that you're talking about. Well, I think, you know, um, obviously being out on the ocean is a deeply um, psychologically intense experience. I mean, it's going to bring you face to face with yourself in an incredibly intense way. Um, obviously, we spend most of our lives distracting ourselves with various things so that we don't have to come face to face with ourselves. But there are a lot of episodes um, in, you know, in, in this book and, and, and in other things that I've written in, in which periods spent out at sea and disoriented, not quite knowing where, you, how far from land you are and, and things like that. Um, can have incredibly intense psychological effects. Um, mm. And I think that's true of culture shock as well. Um, I think people, you know, we talk about people feeling a bit bit at sea, feeling a bit disoriented. Uh, I think that that is also true of some of these, some of these cultural encounters. People feel that, that their ways of understanding the world, their ways of understanding, of orienting themselves in the world have suddenly been whipped away and they are entirely at sea. They don't, they don't really know... <laughs> Mm. Um, how to think of the world and, and many people uh, you know kind of Colonel Kurtz like it it drives them mad right mm. whereas yeah I mean others others embrace the feeling of weightlessness and the feeling of disorientation and um, um, and so on and so forth yeah so I think they, yeah they become sailors and fishermen whereas landlubbers like us are fairly happy to just look at it from a pier while the sun goes down and they'll be able to go back home again yeah, I mean, you don't have to get very far out into the ocean and not be able to feel the bottom to get that sense, that sinking sense in your stomach of, you know, being in an infinite expanse. Absolutely. Um, it, it sounds like you've spent some time out on the big waters yourself. Um, so, no, I've never been deep, deep ocean. Uh, so I've, I've done a lot of sailing, but it's mostly mm. been in the, well, it's been in the med. So, uh, or, you know, um, or coastal, coastal waters of, of North America or things like that. So, so um, no, um, it's been a long uh, a long cherished dream of mine, but uh, unfortunately, family life and 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 financial concerns and things like that. So maybe a retirement project to sail around the world. Very good. Um, and the you other know, part of the premise of the book is a murder mystery. And so, what what happens, and then why is it considered possibly that it could could be a murder? You know, I, I know. I think you said, is it right saying the he would have been treated with some bit of suspicion after his death, and that there was. Uh, like uh, there was things said about him, he broke bread with dangerous men. What was it? Did something with an image of Christ and pigs fat, something like that. <laughs> yeah, some queer thing. Was, was it his gifted nature and obviously his, his views? Did that cause people to have a certain reaction to, to that? So, uh, you know, he's he's discovered in this in this slightly mysterious fashion. So um, I won't give away too much, mm -hmm. but one of, the, yeah. one of the things 
we haven't talked about yet is that um, his openness lands him in trouble with the Inquisition um, later in his life. And, and one of the things, one of the reasons why we know so much about his life is he endures this extremely long Inquisition trial in which he um, goes over and over his life at, at extraordinary length. And this is what how we're able to reconstruct his life in, in, in such great detail. Um, but he's not killed by the Inquisition. He's he's eventually released by them. But he is uh, a little while later found found dead um, in in slightly mysterious circumstances. He's staying at an inn apparently, and his he sends everyone else upstairs to bed. And he's found in the morning, burned, and uh, uh, with a piece of paper in his in his hand that's only partially burned, which the the person reporting on it slightly strangely thinks to record. And there are lots of rumours that swirl at the time that maybe he was robbed by his servants, or maybe it's not quite clear whether he was, another report says he was strangled and, or, or possibly drowned. Uh, there are, so there are all these kind of different reports about him at, at the time. And as part of investigating that in the course of the book, I suppose one of the, one of the ways of, of looking at a culture and a society and an age is thinking about who its victims are, right? So what is what is this culture and this age's way of looking at the world and what people and ways of looking at the world can it not accept existing within it what people are so dangerous to that society and way of looking at the world that that, that they they fall afoul of, of it and, and end up as murder victims so part of this is thinking about who was threatened by Damiens' vision of the world um, mm. and why were they threatened by it because there definitely were people who were very set against him. Uh, yeah, and you know what, readers or listeners, to find out more, you're just going to have to read the book. Read really the book. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it really, as it's a true historical detective story set in 16th century Portugal. That is a history of water being an account of a murder, an epic, and two visions of global history by the eminent Edward Wilson Lee. Thank you so much for your time this evening, Edward. We can yeah. talk on and on about this subject, but we don't want to give away too much. Yeah, no, indeed. And, and just as again, go back to the prose, just beautifully written, reads, reads like a novel and a very interesting way in describing historical events. And yeah, somewhat unique as well. So may you continue. I know you've written some other books. Yeah. So hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll write some more along the way. Thank, right, you, so so thank, thank you for having me on the show, guys. You're more than welcome, Edward. Thanks for your time this evening. Wow, that was a fishy tale. Fishy tale, indeed. Yeah, I look great at, stuff. It, it is. It's. It's. I mean, where you come up with the idea, where you find how you find a character, and then how you string that into trying to make wider points about how insular we can become through greater globalization. You know, we tend to withdraw mm -hmm. into ourselves, and then using two two characters in history to to explain all that I, guess, I, I couldn't imagine starting a task like that myself it's certainly you, you gotta leave to the pros like Edwards that's for sure yeah he knows his stuff but you never know Derek we may eventually be able to sail off into the sunset on the back of the historians and write our own nautical tales but until then <laughs> listeners thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the historians we like to keep it eclectic and a nice mixture up on here. So hope you're enjoying it as much as we are. That's all, folks. Take care. See you now. Thanks, Derek.